Hey, Mr. Owl, how many lickles does it take to giddle to the center of a Tootsie Pop? This is Mega Bluster, an exhaustive examination of the Mega Man franchise. I'm Stefan. This time around, we're looking at Little Samson, released in Japan as Serei Densetsu Riku, which translates roughly as Spirit Legend Lickle, on June 26, 1992, for the Nintendo Family Computer, and on October 22, 1992, for the Nintendo Entertainment System. In Part 5 of Mega Bluster, we looked at Akira Kitamura's Kokoro, the game that Mega Man's father created after leaving Capcom to take charge of his own creative destiny. In that episode, we explored why Kitamura left Capcom, what his goals were when working on Kokoro, his broader aspirations in founding the production company Takeru, and where Kokoro both succeeded and fell short. Kokoron failed to set the sales charts ablaze, but as a moderately ambitious Famicom title, it also was not the game that spelled doom for Takeru. No, that would be Nostalgia 1907, Koichi Yotsui's 1991 adventure game for the Sharp X68000 computer. The X68000 was a line of popular computers in Japan in the late 80s and early 90s, and its similarity to arcade hardware created a fertile ground for developers looking to sell games in that region. As in the West, computer games in Japan were often able to, or forced to, tackle a different set of subjects and formats than were their console counterparts. Nostalgia 1907 reflects that reality as a counterweight to Kokoron's breezy, colorful Famicom platforming action. 1907 was a text-based adventure game set aboard a cruise ship floating in the northern Atlantic Ocean following the end of the Russo-Japanese War. Yotsui, a Capcom veteran responsible for the seminal arcade classic Strider, was in charge of the project, and his ambitions were grand. As sometimes happens at companies built to favor artistic expression over commercial appeal, 1907 was ambitious, expensive, and without an audience. The game flopped hard on release, and financially crippled, Takeru would close its doors shortly afterwards. But before it did, it would make one last grab for the brass ring, this time at the behest of legendary game producer Taito, with Serei Densetsu Riku, a game that, somewhat surprisingly, proved to be the masterpiece Takeru was formed to create, albeit too late. The two men who seemed to wear the most hats during the production of Little Samson were Shinichi Yoshimoto and Kiyoshi Utata, both of whom were instrumental in founding Takeru with Kitamura and Yotsui. Yoshimoto built his reputation at Capcom with his work on Ghouls and Ghosts and Strider, 
while Utata cut his teeth doing graphics work for the wonderful Metal Storm at Irem. Both men were contributors to Kokoro, and Yoshimoto also worked on Nostalgia 1907, which made him one of the only two men to work on all three of Takeru's major releases, the other being composer Yoshimoto Yokoyama. Incidentally, Yoshimoto is also credited on IMDb for doing visual effects work on the 1995 cyberpunk classic Johnny Mnemonic. None of these men has a long list of game credits following their work on Little Samson. Other members of the team included graphic designer Hiroshi Kitamura, I can't find information making clear whether or not he was related to the studio's founder, who would later work on the PlayStation cult classic No One Can Stop Mr. Domino. There was also designer Yugo Sato, who would contribute to the color design of Langrisser 5 on the Sega Saturn, and of course Yokoyama himself, the in-house composer. Not listed on the game's credits is Akira Kitamura. In 1992, it's unclear what role he was playing in Takeru's operations or the development of its final two games. The company's other 1992 project, Rejection, then no Senshi, was released into obscurity for the FM towns in Japan and doesn't even have a list of credited developers publicly available. Kitamura's influence can be felt throughout the game, though, and it's not hard to imagine that the team were looking to his example as an inspiration when they put together their one and only masterwork. What can we make of this odd assemblage of talent, people who would come together this once under the Takeru umbrella and then barely work on any games again in any meaningful capacity? Well, game development is a harsh mistress, game development in the 1990s was a doubly harsh mistress, and game development in the 1990s in Japan was a triply harsh mistress. People live long lives, and moving from one industry to another in search of higher pay and greater recognition is a great motivator for many of them. And by the time Little Samson reached market, Takeru was done. There was no future for any of these people at Takeru the studio where creatives were to be in control of their own destiny. Is it any wonder that they might have looked elsewhere after the Enterprise collapsed? But don't be deceived by little things like sales figures. Little Samson is one hell of a game. The core of Little Samson is teamwork. And the game builds on that idea in a way that impresses with its simplicity, while also evolving concepts that had as recently as three years earlier been wildly successful. It's a fusion in some ways of two different very popular gimmicks. The power-swapping mechanic of Mega Man, and the multi-character life bar of Konami's 1989 Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles for the Nintendo Entertainment System. I'm sorry, that's Ultra Games' 1989 Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles for the Nintendo Entertainment System. How could I make that mistake? Taken together, 
These two gimmicks combine to create a breezy adventure that creates the illusion of complexity in a late-period Famicom game, while in fact being remarkably simple and accessible for players of all ages. The story of Little Samson is told in wordless cutscenes, recalling Kitamura's evocative, thematically rich Mega Man 2. An evil wizard is wreaking havoc on a peaceful kingdom, causing the king to send out a summons for four heroes to join forces and fight back. These four heroes are Little Samson, a young boy who throws fireballs and has spiky hair, Kikira, the dragon, who can fly endlessly and shoots in an upward arc, Gam, who is basically the thing, by which I mean the Fantastic Four's the thing and not John Carpenter's the thing, and K.O., a mouse who makes up for his vulnerability by being fast, light, and able to fit into very small places. Rather than beginning the game with the party intact, the player must bring each of them to the castle via short introductory stages that encourage familiarization and understanding of how each will play. It's only when the four reach the castle, and after the player as Samson is forced to face off against Kikira the Dragon in combat, that the party forms and the game's central rhythm starts a beaten. Now at any point in Little Samson, the player can pause the game and switch characters. Like Mega Man, these switches give the player different tools for handling specific obstacles and situations. Like Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, each of these characters has their own life bar, meaning that the player has to decide whether to try to balance health across multiple characters or to burn through each one at a time. Each choice comes with pros and cons, sticking to one character until their death preserves the others for future use, but at the cost of potentially having to deal with subpar abilities at critical moments. Spreading the burden across all characters may make situational navigation easier, but also risks leaving all four characters depleted when facing off against an end-stage boss. There's no right answer, and that puts the player in an interesting position as they attempt to navigate the game world. The world itself is split into several superficially diverse biomes that will be familiar to any connoisseur of 8-bit platformers. Forests, waterfalls, caves, volcanoes, and like. They're laid out effectively, and enemy design is sufficiently diverse as to not become tiresome, but not sufficiently diverse as to become interesting. Although the game proceeds linearly, the character swapping mechanic creates some illusion of choice and player agency. A level navigated with Kikira is not the same as a level navigated with KO. The meaningful differences in each character's feel suffices as a substitute for an open level selector. What distinguishes Little Samson from the Mega Man games we've examined is their sense of forward momentum. While not a fast game per se, Little Samson creates a sufficiently clear path for the player that they can navigate it without too often having to pause and consider tactical options. The player's approach to any challenge depends on what character they're using, and given that they can switch characters at any time, options remain open. 
The character's different navigational tools means that there are multiple potential approaches to each challenge, which creates a pretty stark contrast with the games we examined in our first season. The level of polish applied to Little Samson is what distinguishes it from its contemporaries. As a late-period NES release, it had the advantage of following a long line of predecessors that had to figure out how to milk every last ounce from Nintendo's cash cow. The rotation effect on Samson every time he jumps amounts to a because-we-could flourish that never fails to delight. And the quality of the level maps, tile sets, and animations remains high throughout. The game never feels loose or sloppy, and the controls remain consistently wonderful. It's only in its music that the game slips slightly. It's good without being great. No one's forming a Little Samson cover band 30 years later. By virtue of its graphics, character swapping mechanic, game feel, level design, and polish, Little Samson stands as one of the crown jewels of the NES library. A game so beautifully tuned to its target hardware and so meticulously crafted by a team of skilled artisans taking their last shot at glory that it should be high on the must-play list of any gaming aficionado with even a passing interest in the history of the platformer genre. It is also in some ways the apotheosis of 8-bit Mega Man-like design, notably in how it fully realizes the weapon-swapping mechanic to create significantly different approaches to tactical challenges across its four characters. Little Samson is a masterpiece. But you don't know it because of that. If you know anything about Little Samson, you know that it's expensive. Little Samson was released by Taito in the second half of 1992. Taito is an historically significant developer and publisher whose 1978 title, Space Invaders, more or less created the Japanese arcade industry as we know it. Yet with the exception of 1993's Bubble Bobble Part 2, and 1994's truly inexplicable The Flintstones' Surprise at Dinosaur Peak, 1992 was the last year it released games for the Nintendo Entertainment System. In fact, few games at all were released after 1992 for the NES, or at the very least, few good ones. Only Nintendo's incredible Kirby's Adventure in 1993 can really stand with the best the system had to offer over the course of its long life. And there are good reasons for that. By the end of 1992, the market had moved on from the NES in favor of its successor, the Super Nintendo, and its competitor, the Sega Genesis. As mentioned in our Mega Man 6 episode, Nintendo tried to squeeze a little more juice out of its decade-old hardware with a redesign, a reduced price point, and a few last-ditch value games like Zoda's Revenge, Star Tropics 2, and Wario's Woods. But the system's days as a prime mover of software were over. Little Samson was released at arguably the last moment a game could be released for the NES and still have a decent shot at making money. 
Takeru might have been better off targeting the Super Nintendo or the Genesis with Little Samson, but truthfully I'm not sure the company had it in it at that point. Takeru was dying thanks to the disappointment of Kokoron and the catastrophic failure of Nostalgia 1907, and trying to train a team of Famicom-hardened developers on new hardware at that late stage would likely have resulted in Little Samson not getting made at all. The money would have run out before they reached market. Little Samson, without an established IP, being released on a dying system, did not sell well. Taito put no marketing budget behind it and doesn't seem to have produced any more than the minimum required number of carts. Essentially, the game was dumped on an unreceptive market and left to languish. But its quality shone through, and when collectors started to look back at the NES years later, they deemed it a hidden gem and started buying. Now, supply and demand are shockingly simple things in practice, and the reality is that by the time people realized what Little Samson was, the demand so dramatically exceeded the supply that the only real solution was for the price to skyrocket. As of the day I am writing this script, Pricecharting.com lists a mint-in-box copy of Little Samson as selling for more than $17,000. A loose cartridge will run you a mere $2,400 by comparison. Prices in Japan are more reasonable. A loose card of Lickel will run you somewhere in the neighborhood of $200 to $300, while a mint-in-box copy costs $2,200. The game has never been re-released on any platform. In fact, right up until the recent announcement that Nostalgia 1907 would be included on the Sharp X68000, no Takeru game has ever been re-released since the studio was a going concern. How can this be, given the pedigree behind the studio and the relatively high quality of its games? Well, the culprit's likely a tricky rights situation. While Little Samson was published by Taito, both Kokoron and Nostalgia 1907 were self-published by Takeru under the Surdewave label. When the company shut down, it's unclear who retained ownership of what aspects of its portfolio. Was it sold to cover debts, retained by individuals? What was the original ownership structure of the company? Who knows? And in the absence of an enterprising soul dedicated to uncovering who owns all of the rights to these games, no publisher is going to risk legal action by an until-now-silent party with an ownership stake, by re-releasing a series of obscure NES and Japanese PC games that no one seemed to want to play back when they were new. This is the precarious state of preservation in the video game industry. The final works of Mega Man's creator are, for all intents and purposes, lost to history available only as pirated ROMs played through emulators, commercially unavailable and likely to remain so into perpetuity because no one in 1994 was giving consideration to the possibility that they might be worth anything in the future. Akeru was done. 
Kitamura was done. Little Samson was done. Bury it. And now, decades later, with Little Samson finally achieving acclaim and appreciation that eluded it during its initial release, the only way to play the game is to either pay obscene prices on the second-hand market or resort to piracy. Neither prospect is particularly appealing, and neither does justice to what should be regarded, and finally is regarded, as a late-period NES masterpiece. Little Samson is brilliant. If Kitamura had stayed at Capcom, or if his heirs had remained committed to moving forward with the Mega Man franchise instead of treading water for so many years, the series' arc might have led it to a place not far from Little Samson. The aesthetic would have been different, yes, but the movement, the more character-based power swapping, the level of polish applied throughout, could have resulted in Mega Man going much further on the NES than it did. When Mega Man actually made its first major leap onto the Super Nintendo Entertainment System, it did so by moving in a wildly different direction than Little Samson. It couldn't get to the same place anymore because it wasn't the same game. But for now, we can raise a toast to Little Samson. The last truly great exemplar of the Mega Man type game on the NES, and the final legacy of Akira Kitamura. He burned short, but he burned bright. Thank you for listening to this bonus episode of Mega Bluster. Music in this episode was sourced from ocremix.org. You can find credits and links to the compositions in the show notes. I'll be back next time, continuing this series of Gaiden episodes where we discuss non-Mega Man games that are nevertheless important to our understanding of the series' trajectory. Until next time, how long will I keep on fighting? How long will my pain last? Maybe only the X-Buster on my arm knows for sure.